Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the 13th school shooting this year, this time in Nashville, Tennessee, in which three nine-year-olds and three adults at a private Christian school were killed by a military-style assault rifle, replicas of which Republican congressmen wear on their lapels. We'll look into whether the majority of Americans who send their kids to school and wonder whether it might be the last time they see them alive will form a majority and act with the same energy the NRA does to enforce a tyranny of the minority in making sure there are virtually no restrictions on who can have an unlimited supply of guns in America where there are more guns than people. Joining us from Nashville is Jonathan Metzel, a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and director of its Center for Medicine, Health and Society. He's the author of several books and a prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. And his latest book is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. We'll assess whether a lying, gun-obsessed Republican congressman who represents Nashville and is now offering his thoughts and prayers could be held to account for not protecting the most innocent lives in his community in a state where the governor has just banned drag shows as a threat to children while making sure there are no bans on military assault weapons. Then we'll examine the extent the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is playing China off against America as he tries to extract a security and nuclear power deal from Biden after having made a diplomatic deal with China. Joining us is John Hoffman, the Research Director at Dawn, Democracy for the Arab World Now, and a PhD candidate at George Mason University specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. He was recently awarded the 40 Under 40 Award from the Middle East Policy Council for his work on U.S. foreign policy in the region, and his work has been featured in Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cipher Brief, and Foreign Policy Magazine. We will discuss his article at The American Prospect, co-authored with Sarah Lee Whitson, Breaking Away from Secret Concessions in the Middle East. Then finally, as Trump issues threats against prosecutors and warns of death and destruction while calling on his armed followers to protest if he is indicted, we'll get an assessment on whether we are on the brink of a civil war or are hearing the desperate cries of a diminishing demagogue whose act is getting stale as the spotlight dims on a winner who is becoming a whiner. Joining us is Barbara Walter, a professor of political science and raw chair in Pacific International Relations at the University of California, San Diego, where her current research focuses on the behavior of rebel groups in civil wars, including inter-rebel group fighting, alliances, and the strategic use of propaganda and extremism. A life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, she serves on the CIA Advisory Panel Political Instability Task Force and helps run the award-winning blog Political Violence at a Glance and is the author of How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. 
as a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And my apologies for the audio quality of my questions in this upcoming interview with Jonathan Metzl. Due to technical problems, we had to use a backup recording. And joining us now is Jonathan Metzl, who is a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, and the director of its Center for Medicine, Health, and Society. He's the author of several books and a prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. And his latest book is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Metzl. Thanks so much. So there in Nashville, in America's heartland, you had a horrible massacre at a private Christian school. Three young children, nine nine and eight years old, along with the principal and two others, were killed. Then, of course, the shooter as well, a 28-year-old former student who apparently is in transition from female to male, was killed by the police. And, of course, the two guns that were used in the shooting appear to have been purchased legally. It does seem as though, Jonathan, that the shooter did target people, and it was well-planned, I guess, if that's a way to describe it, having shot the principal, who apparently is very popular, along with uh, the nine-year-old daughter of the current pastor, whose uh, school was a part of the Presbyterian Church. So what's the uh, sense in Nashville today? You know, we, we're we're no strangers to gun violence here. We're no strangers to mass shooting. We've had um we've had, you know, we had a Waffle House mass shooting here. We've had multiple, multiple victim homicides this year. But I have to say there's something about shooting kids in their school um that is just I just think the whole town is in shock right now, honestly. You know, I, I was on Vanderbilt campus yesterday when they were bringing in the victims to Vanderbilt Hospital. And um, I, I just think yesterday there was a kind of quietness over our campus that I have not seen. The, the shooting was about two miles away, so you could hear the helicopters and the sirens. And then today, just people just don't feel safe. I was talking to a colleague of mine about how her daughter refused to get out of the car today when she was dropping off for... Um, for carpool. And she said, how do you know I'm going to be safe at school? And, and my colleague said, you know, I have to be honest. Uh, I, I, I don't, I, I don't, you know, so it just, I think there's a very generalized trauma right now that, um, that we're, we're going through and, and so many communities have also. Well, of course the country itself is going through this, uh, unfortunately on a regular basis as of late March, the gun violence archive has counted 130 mass shootings in the United States so far this year. And last year, the group counted 647 mass shootings. Of those, 21 were involved, five or more casualties. So that's America today. Now, in the state of Tennessee, the governor has decided that 
it's more important to ban drag shows than to ban military-style assault weapons. Now, those priorities would be comical if they weren't so tragic. I mean, you know what? In my life, I do a lot of media interviews about this kind of stuff, and and yesterday the initial reports from the police were that this was a, a a woman shooter, and so I did a lot of interviews yesterday where people were talking about how rare it was that it was a a woman mass shooter. That was the first you know first series of reports from the police, and then when the report came out and said, and this is somebody who identifies as as transgender, it, it was you could just almost hear a gasp in my office when this happened. I mean, people were just like, not, not now, not with all the, I mean, I'm sure it's possibly related, but all of the, all of the tension, all of the, um, anti-trans stuff that's happening right now. And so, you know, I've, I've been saying in all the interviews I've been doing that, first of all, we don't know the story here. We don't know what the story is. Um, second, I've studied mental illness and mass shootings uh, for a long time. And a lot of times after the mass shooting, we'll say, oh, it's the person had mental illness. But it never means that the person, that the mental illness caused the mass shooting. And so even if this shooter was transitioning or in treatment, I honestly don't know as we're speaking now. I think it's a far cry from from saying that that caused it. I mean, certainly that might have been a factor. Who, who knows? Um, but I just think there's a lot of details we don't know about this shooting. And oftentimes when you start to break down the factors, factors, other, you know, access to firearms, past history of violence, substance use, um, violence in social networks, history of trauma. There are so many other things that explain mass shootings that I think very often the, the, the easy answer we have in the beginning doesn't hold up to be true. But I, I certainly think it, it's going to be an important part of this story as it plays out. Well, the trans community are obviously victims of a of a horrible sort of jihad from right wing Republicans, and they seems to seems to have metastasized into the Republican Party's basic playbook, and it hasn't stopped uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene from exploiting this situation and trying to turn these victims into victimizers. But uh, I don't imagine it's going to really be that successful. What seems to be happening here, Jonathan, and let me get your opinion on this. I mean, so many people in America, and you just mentioned uh, colleagues taking their daughter to school and she didn't want to get out of the car. So many Americans drop their kids off at school and have that qualm about whether they'll see their child again. And it happens far too often. To my mind, that has to be a bigger constituency than these hardcore Second Amendment fundamentalists who strut around with military-style weapons, and and what are they afraid of? I mean, you're a psychiatrist, or tell me, what in God's name? Why do you, in this country do you need to have an assault rifle? Cover yourself in camo with body armor and God knows what else, and go off in the woods and hunt mythical enemies. What is that psychological bubble that exists in so much of America? Well, I. I don't want to speak for anybody's psychology, um, but but I would say that having interviewed a lot of gun owners over the past decade and a half, um, I would say that they 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 see threat, and their answer very often is to have a weapon. And so when they hear about a mass shooting like this, um, there there a lot of people I know their response isn't um, 
gosh, this means we need sensible gun laws so we can all get along. It's if that ever happens to me, I want to be there with a weapon, which is a very slippery slope from a public health perspective and data perspective and liberal perspective. But I'm just saying from 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 just the everyday people that I that I've researched and spoken with um, that that the terror of a mass shooting is is the terror that they might be caught without a weapon at, at a moment like this. And so that's, I think, why you see um, gun sales go up after mass shootings. And also because then they feel like there's going to be more regulation, which is another driver of sales. And so you can just see how this becomes like a a, a really a vicious cycle in a, in a way that um, every answer leads to more polarization and more guns. And what we lose is the ability to talk across the across the aisle but i think you know from from their perspective they feel like if the bad guys have an ar-15 they don't want to be caught without an ar-15 and and again it's it's a it's a slippery slope that we're in right now um but that's kind of where we are but the second amendment itself says a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state so let's just focus on that, not the last part that the Supreme Court turned around and made the most important part of the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms. We are neither free or secure. And there's more of us than there is of them. And as I was mentioning, so many people take their kids to school. So is there a way to mobilize the majority here? Because this is a tyranny of the minority. What's happened to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, now life and the pursuit of happiness is being threatened by liberty. Well, you know, we've had a we've had a major shift in the interpretation of the Second Amendment over the course of the past decades in this country. Before 2008 and the, and the Heller decision in 2008, the Supreme Court, um, we interpreted the Second Amendment to mean that People in the military would own guns. 2008 opened really the floodgates of civilian-owned guns by saying that the Second Amendment applied to individuals also. Uh, and that really changed the, the calculus. But even that decision in 2008 uh, said that cities and towns and states have the right to decide who is dangerous through screening or background checks and, and and basically keep people who are ticking time bombs, uh, keep them from carrying guns in public. Um, we, 2008 really changed the course of, of American history with guns. And then we had a even worse result last summer from the Supreme Court, the Bruin decision that basically said that even blue states and cities don't really have the right to regulate who gets to carry a gun in public. And so it's just been one thing after another. I think the, the the lesson of all of this is that it's not a question of popular opinion. It's that the right has figured out a way to control the courts that, and, and, and certain politicians. And so as much as I wish this was something about, about, um, about popular opinion, because I think you're right. I think reasonable people could come together and, and figure something out. Um, but but I think that right now it's not a question of popular opinion. It's a question of the judiciary and which politicians are, you know, in, in the pocket of the NRA. And and so really it's a question of really power more than popular opinion. 
So just in closing, Jonathan, what do we do about the quality of the lawmakers in this country, particularly these uh, far-right gun-toting characters, including the local congressman, who, by the way, Andy Ogles, a couple of years back, tweeted out a Christmas picture of him and his family in front of a Christmas tree, all holding assault rifles. And, of course, Ogles is famous for lying about his resume, not quite the extent of George Sanders, but he's up there, apparently claimed himself to be an economist, which he's not, and also was in law enforcement, fighting international sex crimes, which, of course, was a complete fantasy. So he's not exactly the kind of leader that the country needs and deserves. You've got the senator, Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee. She's taken a, a million dollars in donations from the NRA. So this is a real problem, isn't it? And uh, it would seem to me that this is a place to start because, as we've talked about earlier, there are more parents with kids in school than there are these people in the gun cult, particularly in Congress. You know, historically, not not that it's always the case, but historically, gun gun rights supporters are much more reliable voting block um, than are gun safety supporters. And so if gun, if the gun safety movement created a reliable voting block that would vote people out of office if they acted this way, these guys would change their tune in five seconds. Um, but but that's not the case. In, instead, gun owners are have been historically a much more reliable voting block. And uh, and so we'll, you know, love to see if the, if this changes, but there's really no accountability, particularly with gerrymandering and other factors, but th- there's no accountability for people having those positions. Um, and so the question is, is there a way to turn gun safety into the kind of political force that the NRA turned gun owners into? And uh, maybe we're getting there. We, we're certainly got, got, you know, the NRA had a big head start, but, but we're not there yet, unfortunately. Well, thank you for joining us, Jonathan. I appreciate it, even though I recognize how difficult it is for you and particularly for the citizens of Nashville, Tennessee, after this horrible massacre. Thanks so much. Let's please keep talking. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Metzl, who is a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, where he's also the director of the Center for Medicine, Health and Society. He's the author of several books and a prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. And his latest book is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. We're going to take a restation break and back examining the extent to which the Saudi Crown Prince MBS is playing China off against America as he tries to extract a security and nuclear power deal from Biden after having made a diplomatic deal with China. St. Patrick's every Sunday Father Fletcher heard your sins Oh, he's unconcerned with competition He never cares to win But a blood-stained young hand That never held His parents never thought of him as their troubled son. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is John Hoffman, a research director at Dawn, Democracy for the Arab World Now, and a PhD candidate at George Mason University, specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. He was recently awarded the 40 Under 40 Award from the Middle East Policy Council for his work on U.S. foreign policy in the region, and his work has been featured in the Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cipher Brief, and Foreign Policy Magazine. And he has an article at the American Prospect, co-authored with Sarah Lee Whitson, Breaking Away from Secret Concessions in the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Hoffman. Thank you for having me on today, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And it does seem as though Mohammed bin Salman is certainly a break from the previous Saudi leaders who seem to always pretty much go along with whatever the U.S. wanted. But now he seems to be using his leverage, having just made the Chinese brokered re-engagement with Iran. And prior to that, of course, OPEC plus with the Russians and having just after that ill-fated fist bump with Biden, he jacked up the price of oil and the opposite of what the Biden administration wanted. And then he invited Xi Jinping for a big state visit and lauded him. So following the recent diplomatic re-engagement the Chinese brokered, is now MBS now using that as leverage to try and come up with a security agreement from the United States and also help with civilian nuclear power? No, absolutely. So the way Saudi Arabia is approaching this is within the broader context of a return of competition, uh, great power competition between the United States, Russia and China. And, you know, for a long time, you know, following the Cold War, the United States was the sole dominant player in the Middle East, sole dominant player in the world, really. But now that we have a rising China and, you know, some would say a resurgent Russia, this provides a really grand opportunity for actors like Mohammed bin Salman to play these actors off of one another. So, you know, MBS has his interests. He wants to remain in power. He wants more commitment from the United States. So the easiest way to do that is to say, OK, you're you're not going to give me this. You're not going to give me what I want. I can just as easily go over here and go to China. And and it's within that context that this deal was brokered between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And it's no coincidence that immediately before this deal was brokered, news broke that Saudi Arabia had requested a security guarantee from the United States as part of uh, the ongoing efforts to try and normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. So what's happening then with the Abram Accords? It seems to me that the deal that the Chinese brokered makes the Abram Accords look irrelevant. Where do they stand between uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel? So the with the Abraham Accords, Saudi Arabia and Israel have already been strategically aligned for years. You know, they're they they don't hold formal diplomatic relations, but in terms of their in terms of their strategic interests, they're incredibly aligned. So now that the Abraham Accords have become a new guiding rod, a new framework for U.S. Uh, foreign policy in the Middle East, you know, they were ushered in under Trump, but Biden and his administration has embraced them wholeheartedly. You know, MBS is aware that 
the United States is viewing its interests in the Middle East increasingly through the lens of expanding the Abraham Accords. Now, this is absent any real fundamental debate in the United States on whether these accords are in our strategic interests, whether these accords actually accomplish anything other than the preservation of interests of these political elites that are brokering them. But, you know, he he knows that this is a way into Washington, D.C. with these Abraham Accords. But what's so fascinating is with this uh, deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran, there was a lot of reporting that this deal actually sent shockwaves through Israel. I, th- I think there was one it was, uh, article that I read. It was Netanyahu furious or caught off guard at, at Saudi Iran deal. And I think what is so unique here is this deal was, yes, very much so used as a projection towards the United States saying, hey, we can work with China. You know, they're the new top dog in the Middle East, whatever you want to think. But I think it also served to send a very clear message to Israel, which is, you know, Mohammed bin Salman certainly wants to normalize relations. Israel and Saudi Arabia have certainly come together strategically. But at the end of the day, Saudi Arabia, if Israel were to go kinetic against Iran, Saudi Arabia would bear the direct retaliation being so close to Iran. And, you know, after the the attacks on uh, the Saudi oil facilities in 2019, you know, the, Saudi Arabia stands, you know, very vulnerable next to Iran. And I think this was also a way for them to signal to Netanyahu that, hey, we, re- we retain our own agency here, too. Well, clearly the attacks on Abqaiq uh, fired from Farsi Island by the IRGC were very targeted. And this is during the Trump administration. And it must have been really shocking to the Saudis that the U.S. didn't do a damn thing about it. I mean, after all the billions that they spent on U.S. weapons, the Trump administration didn't help Saudi Arabia out. And I'm sure that has a lot to do with why they've just made this diplomatic deal with the Chinese. No, absolutely. And, you know, I think, and, and we've really seen this over the past year, you know, the United States is increasingly viewing its interests as located outside of the Middle East. You know, we are now heavily involved in Eastern Europe, you know, aiding Ukraine, Tensions between China and Taiwan are continuing to escalate on a daily basis. You know, the United States is being pulled to other strategic theaters and America's partners in the Middle East recognize this and they're concerned because for decades, the United States has served as their security guarantor. They do not want the United States to go anywhere. They want the United States to remain deeply engaged as you know, as their supporter. So they will do whatever they view is necessary in order to accomplish this. So just back to the Abram Accords, though, the way, at least the way I see it, Jonathan, is that they're essentially selling out the Palestinians, and the idea is that Israel wants to change the focus from the Palestinians to a Arab-Iranian struggle. And that's why I wonder whether the Abram Accords have become somewhat irrelevant because of the Chinese brokered peace deal. And now you have a situation in Israel where you've got massive strikes, general strikes, tremendous demonstrations. Netanyahu's had to postpone his power grab of the judiciary. 
But in in retaliation, Ben Gavir, the national security minister, this ultra right wing guy, he threatened to pull out of the coalition. So Netanyahu's had to make a secret deal with him to form a a special militia that would presumably be at the behest of the settlers. So they'd have their own militias to terrorize the Palestinians. So what happens if things go south with the Palestinians and you have a new intifada? I mean, how could the Abraham Accords survive? How could the the Saudis stick with Israel under those circumstances? No, absolutely. You know, and what's happening in Israel is not only unprecedented, but it it's truly changing <laughs> by by the minute. Um, you know, over at dawn, we've been trying to keep up with this and documenting a lot of it. And, you know, it's it, it's not only concerning, but it's really, you know, intimately in a way connected to uh, the Abraham Accords. You know, it's just it's symbolically the continued sidelining of the Palestinian people. And the Abraham Accords, you know, are this top down, very high level normalization that is designed to sideline Palestine completely. And, you know, it's it's rooted in the strategic interest of Israeli political elites and Arab political elites, which have, you know, a, a vest, you know, a vested interest in the continuation of not just the dominant regional balance of power in the region, but also the autocratic status quo. Is Israel wants to make sure that the region remains autocratic. And there are several reasons for this, you know, one by maintaining these autocratic actors they're able to cooperate with them at such a high level where these arab autocrats do not have to answer to any domestic constituencies or or anything like that they just repress on the other hand by maintaining the authoritarian status quo the majority of the masses within the middle east who remain overwhelmingly pro-palestinian they don't have to deal with them at all. They can completely sidestep them. If there were genuinely democratic governments in these in these states, then it's undoubtedly the people would push for greater greater support for the the Palestinians. But I think you're touching on a really interesting point. Is you know where do the Abraham Accords you know whether Saudi signs on or or not, but where do the existing strategic uh, normalizations you know with the uae bahrain morocco and sudan come into play as things continue to escalate in in israel will they be able to continue as normal with an israel that's increasingly in turmoil and that is just taking such a hard and vicious far right turn i think at the top levels within these arab countries i i don't i don't think you know mbs or mbz and any of them really care about the Palestinian people, I think, you know, they will try to continue with business as normal. But whether you start seeing, you know, wider demonstrations or wider expressions of solidarity with the Palestinian people, then that could present an issue to these governments. But in your article, The American Prospect, Jonathan, you point out that recently officials from the United States, Israel and the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, Morocco and Bahrain convened in Manama 
Bahrain to push forward with the establishment of the Negev Forum designed to further integrate security cooperation in the region. And in January of 2023, the Negev Forum was convened again with a special annual Negev Summit set to be held this spring. So this is obviously a part of the foundations for the Abram Accords. How solid is this Negev Forum? Well, I think, you know, it's solidity has now been thrown into question, honestly, because it was supposed to be held uh, this month uh, in March. But uh, given everything that's happening in Israel, it's been postponed. But what is interesting about the Negev Foreign Forum and what's interesting about, you know, rumors of this new Middle East Air Defense Alliance uh, nicknamed Meade is is really, you know, the ambiguity surrounding it. These are initiatives that are being pursued by Joe Biden, by uh, Blinken and Brett McGurk, you know, in almost near secrecy from the from the U.S. public. And while, you know, of course, the United States and, you know, many of these countries would love, you know, some sort of regional framework for advancing mutual interests, uh, primarily the sustainment of the autocratic status quo and the prevailing balance of power, we can see that because these countries are so unstable due to the nature of their own domestic rule, including Israel, I mean, just, you know, looking at what's happening in Israel right now, developments can just immediately spark and throw a lot of this into question. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, keeping everybody on the edge of their seats because by the very nature of their rule, the very illiberal nature of their rule, these countries are inherently unstable. Well, you know, apparently the uh, U.S. ambassador to Israel somehow hinted that uh, Biden was going to meet with Netanyahu, uh, and then the White House had to shoot that down. There's no plans to meet with Netanyahu. So things are pretty tense, are they not, between Netanyahu and Biden? Biden's been a longtime supporter of of Israel, but Netanyahu has yet to have a visit to the White House. And I don't know, I mean, he only cares about the Christian Zionists and the far right. He doesn't care about the fact that majority of American Jews don't support the far right. And particularly now the far right's got this horrible finance minister. And now, as I mentioned earlier, Ben Gvir, apparently, the national security minister, has brokered a deal with Netanyahu to set up a militia at the behest of the settler movement. And that's scary as hell, because then the Palestinians are likely to be beaten up on even more. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think it's also just so important to recognize that the protests ongoing in Israel and the outcry that w we're hearing is about Netanyahu rolling back institutional constraints within Israel itself. But this has nothing to do with the decades and decades of the subjugation of the Palestinian people, of which people in Washington and in you know the government in Israel are still very much aligned on. So while these protests are taking place and while it's very unprecedented, it's not protests protesting the treatment uh, the mistreatment of the Palestinian people, it's protesting Netanyahu's own personal power grab that he's doing. 
So even if Netanyahu were to be removed in this personal power grab, you know, let's say were to come to an end, like you astutely noted, you know, you still have Ben Gavir, you still have these far right forces that are intent on essentially wreaking havoc. You have Smotrich who called for the annihilation of a Palestinian town. I mean, this this is, you know, crazy, but this is what ultimately U.S. policy has gone to supporting, you know, the, the, we it, this has happened under our watch, essentially, if you want to put it that way. We've encouraged this type of behavior by providing Israel with such impunity. And of course, the power grab to gut the judiciary, if that happened in the United States, it would be extraordinary. The idea that the government in power could pass legislation by majority vote that would override any Supreme Court decision. I mean, I would love to be able to override this right-wing Supreme Court's decisions, but it's unheard of uh, in terms of the separation of powers. And that's what Netanyahu is trying to do. And, of course, the, the settler movement is all behind it, along with the religious nationalists. So this is, you know, an, an amazing power grab. And I don't think the, the American public understand exactly how blatant it is. No, I, I really don't think so. You know, uh you know, domestically, I guess we don't really have anything that we could compare it to other than, you know, just Trump's utter, you know, dumpster fire of an administration. But, you know, this is this is truly unprecedented. And I think it calls for a real reckoning for U.S. foreign policy towards Israel. And, you know, over at dawn, we issued a a very detailed briefing paper on how we need to begin to reconceptualize this quote unquote special relationship between the United States and Israel. Because if it it the time to do so is now, it, it is dire and things only appear to be getting worse. And the United States really needs to adjust course. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, John. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Hoffman, who is a research director at Dawn Democracy for the Arab World Now and a PhD candidate at George Mason University, specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. He was recently awarded the 40 Under 40 Award from the Middle East Policy Council for his work on U.S. foreign policy in the region. And his work has been featured in Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cypher Brief and Foreign Policy Magazine. And he has an article at the American Prospect co-authored with Sarah Lee Whitson, breaking away from secret concessions in the Middle East. We can take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment on whether we are on the brink of a civil war or are hearing the desperate cries of a diminishing demagogue. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Barbara Walter, a professor of political science and the Raw Chair in Pacific International Relations at the University of California, San Diego, where her current research focuses on the behavior of rebel groups in civil wars, including inter-rebel group fighting, alliances, and strategic use of propaganda and extremism. A life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, she serves on the CIA Advisory Panel Political Instability Task Force and helps run the award-winning blog Political Violence at a Glance and is the author of How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. Welcome to Background Briefing, Barbara Walter. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Barbara. And on Saturday, on the 30th anniversary of the Waco standoff, siege, and massacre, Donald Trump decided to have his first 2024 political rally for his attempts to become president again. And it started out in a completely surreal way where he stood on stage uh, with his hand over his heart as the Pledge of Allegiance was read, but it was done through a, a video of a song that Trump claimed was a bigger hit than anything that Taylor Swift has out now. And it features the chorus of prisoners from who have been jailed because of their participation in the January 6th insurrection, intercut with Trump reading the Pledge of Allegiance. And the, the video on behind Trump, as he had stood with his hand over his heart, showed pictures of national monuments. And then it segued into the January 6th riot itself. But only showed pictures of police using tear gas, gas and holding back the rioters, as opposed to the rioters overwhelming and beating the police. So it was totally Orwellian. Is it possible that history can be rewritten this way? And this, after all, is coming from the man who is the Republican frontrunner for president and may well get the nomination. Don't think history is going to repeat itself, at least in terms of what Trump is doing now and what he did in the weeks leading up to January 6th. Um, I do think Trump right now um, is behaving like a desperate man, a man who's desperate to avoid prison time, a man who and, and to be indicted. Uh, a man who is desperate to get back into the White House where he had power that fed his ego. Um, and and he's desperate because he's in a much worse position today than he was um, in, in 2020. Um, the big difference is his media reach. And I actually think a lot of what he was doing in Waco um, from this the strange introduction and the video and the the sentences and the phrases that that sort of suggested violence. Um, it, it was quite a rambling, but also extreme speech. And I think it was designed to get him back in the media eye. Um, here is a man that in, in December and January of 2020 and 2021 had almost 90 million followers on Twitter. He had an enormous bullhorn um, and his reach to, to the segments of the American public that, um, that embraced his message of white identity politics, his reach back then was enormous. It is not like that today. He has only about 2 million active users on his own personal social media platform. Um, and he's he's not getting his message out the way he did back then. And so what does he do? He does what 
every propagandist does. He figures out a way to draw attention to himself. He goes and gives a speech in Waco on the 30th anniversary. He knows that the media is going to focus on him because of that. And he gives this very sort of um, theatrical performance that that was going to shock um, people and 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 make him newsworthy again. So so I actually think that if we all just ignored him, um, at least while he's he's off these the Twitter and Facebook and and YouTube, which is probably not going to last that long, um, that that his influence would would really be fairly insignificant. What I worry about is that that the big platforms have are allowing him to come back on and he's going to realize that he needs them and he's going to to leave his subscribers and the money that he's getting from his subscribers and and gravitate back towards places like Twitter and then he's going to have the reach that he had a few years ago well just in the context of Orwellian <laughs> the Orwellian nature of it one of the things that he said was that the Biden regime's weaponization of law enforcement against their political opponents is something straight out of the Stalinist Russia <laughs> horror show, which, which is deeply ironic. And then he went on to say, either the deep state destroys America or we destroy yeah. the deep state. Yes. Now, the deep state is a total fiction. If there was a deep state, there wouldn't have been 9-11 and there wouldn't right. have been a January 6th uh, insurrection. So... Do you think, since you study civil wars and, and the potential for a civil war here in the, in the United States, do you think there's enough people out there that honestly believe that are so alienated from their own government that they believe that there is such a thing as a deep state? I, I mean, I think I think people will believe lots of things. I, I think we, we know that conspiracy theories have been very effective. We know that a surprising percentage of the American public believes in QAnon, which which on the surface just seems unbelievable. Um, and so I, I do think that if people hear a narrative long enough and consistently enough from the media outlets that they gravitate towards, that they do uh, begin to believe that it's the truth. Uh, the question then is, you know, do they then move from simply believing these conspiracy theories to taking action and becoming becoming violent. And, and we know from the research that not all of them do. A certain percentage of them uh, will become violent, um, but those people tended to be predisposed to violence in, in the first place. Um, so, you know, we're we're not on the precipice of a civil war. It it would take many more years of of the United States having a really weak democracy, um, and having really really divisive identity politics, um, uh, for for that extreme group of of potential violent, um, you know, insurrectionists to to gain momentum. Um, uh, but but we we know that it could happen, and and of course 
Trump is is somebody who's interested in getting back into power by whatever means he can. He, this is not a man who believes in democracy. This is not a man who embraces embraces it. He he will use every dirty trick to get back in the White House, and 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 this is one of the strategies that he's trying out. You know, can he actually um, get a significant portion of Americans to to fight for him? If you, it, I haven't gotten any numbers on the turnout in Waco, but it's certainly wasn't uh, outstanding in any way. He got, you know, maybe 15,000 people there. Um, that's that's not an enormous, that's not a really big turnout. And and again, his media reach is, is limited. So the, the same number of people who got his message prior to January 6th did not get his message this time. And inter- interestingly enough, uh, Barbara, it was not played on Fox News. It wasn't played on MSNBC or CNN. Yeah, they just did excerpts. So, but of course, there's some many shoes are about to drop in terms of the many cases against Trump. The yes. first of which is the Manhattan case that he's been raging against. He recently said that if he's indicted by the Manhattan DA, who he's called an animal, and he said the, that there is potential death and destruction across the country. Then he insisted that quote our country is being destroyed as they tell us to be peaceful. Well, what is that? (laughs) Except that he's suggesting that the opposite of peace is warranted. So the shoe hasn't dropped yet on any of these indictments, either in Manhattan or in in Florida or from the Department of Justice. So will that change the picture? He's already calling for insurrection, Yeah, uh, clearly. And that there's (laughs) never been a history in the history of the United States. There's never been a president yeah. Or a former president or a presidential candidate that has openly incited violence and attacked law enforcement officials. Yeah. So I, I think Trump's call for death and destruction is just wishful thinking on his part. We're, the indications that we're seeing is uh, today are not that he has this, that that his even his most passionate supporters are are not coming out. To the same degree that that they did in uh, you know when he lost the election in 2020, so the support is waning, the passion is waning, his message isn't getting through to the same degree, and then probably the most important um, change has been how law enforcement reacts to um, to uprisings. The the irony about Waco is is that the FBI completely changed how it reacted to situations like Waco and Ruby Ridge. They they realized that the way they responded, um, which, which many on the far right found disproportionate, unjustified, illegitimate, um, really fed fed the far right. It was a great recruitment device for groups that were both um, uh, white supremacist and anti-federal government. What the FBI did is they switched to a strategy called infinite patience. So rather than use force, rather than actually respond with violence in these situations, they are now using enormous restraint. They're not doing anything. Um, they're they're waiting out these extremists. And, and what that does is it gives the extremists no fault that they can then use to recruit additional members. So the irony is that that Trump might want to 
foment death and destruction and and have his supporters um, use violence to prevent an indictment or prevent him going to jail. But the FBI today is much, much more savvy about how to handle a situation like that, like this, so that it doesn't get out of hand. And, and they learned that from Waco 30 years ago. And of course, 30 years ago at Waco, there was a 51-day standoff, which definitely attracted and motivated a lot of militias. And ever since, they've carried this kind of obsession with Ruby Ridge and Waco. One of the people standing vigil, of course, over those 51 days was Timothy McVeigh, who went on to blow up the Oklahoma City Federal Building. But you don't see the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, and the Proud Boys as much as they were motivated in many ways by those incidents. They're not a significant threat, you don't think, Barbara? No, I, I think the wind has been taken out of their sails, at least temporarily. The the indictments that came to the many of the insurrectionists and the leaders of the insurrection, the January 6th insurrection, um, those in, indictments, uh, you know, were sobering for other members. Uh, you know, if you if you compare the impunity by which many of those individuals marched down the mall, the the Washington Mall on January sixth, taking video um, videos of themselves um, acting as if what they were were doing was was being patriotic and law abiding, they now know, in fact, that that wasn't true. They now know what the repercussions of supporting Trump. Um, are going to be, and they and they saw that Trump could do nothing to protect them and didn't do anything to protect them. Um, so they have a lot more information today than they did in in early 2021. So then, you don't think that both Trump, as we started out with his opening pledge of allegiance and the the chorus of the national anthem by the uh, inmates in the prisons for their insurrection on January the sixth prior to the rally on Saturday in Waco on Friday, Marjorie Taylor Greene visited a prison to sort of make martyrs out of the insurrectionists. So you're not concerned about this attempt to rewrite history, even though it does seem that the House Speaker is going along with it to some extent. I don't know. It really did. When I watched the the rally, it really struck me as very theatrical, very much designed to do two things, to, to get... Trump back in in the media eye, which he needs to do if if he wants to distract from what's happening in New York and if he wants to take on DeSantis. And it also was, especially the first hour of his speech, was was all about you know, stroking his own ego. It was it was really quite extraordinary. It was this is a guy, I think, who's had a, a, some really tough few weeks. is is feeling a, a bit defeated in a number of ways, and he needed to get out there and make himself feel better. It 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 and and you know the fact that the crowd wasn't that big, the fact that he's not getting a lot of media attention. Um, to me, this feels like it's not really going to go very far. So do you think, just in closing then, Barbara, that if he's indicted, which seems more and more likely, uh, and the irony is, of course, that the first indictment, if it comes from Manhattan, is in many ways the weakest, but perhaps the most significant in as much as had they not given uh, Stormy Daniels $130,000 to shut up two weeks before the elections, had she gone public, 
after the Access Hollywood tapes, it might have been quite damaging to Trump. He may actually have lost the election. So, But given that there are other indictments, certainly the one in Atlanta looks much more serious, and, and so does the uh, Department of Justice, uh, in both in looking into the insurrection and into the Mar-a-Lago classified documents. Is there a, a sense then that, in other words, he could end not with a bang but with a whimper? Well, a lot will depend on how how things go and how the federal government behaves throughout this process. Um, you know, we've heard that Trump would like to have a perp walk. He would like to have that visual of the federal government taking um, him away in handcuffs. Uh, this would be a great recruiting tool both for him and for the far right. Um, and it would be another example that they would claim of, of government overreach. But the federal government and the FBI are, are, are savvy and they understand the game that's being played here. And, um, and, and it's, it's my expectation and my hope that, that they think, think this through very carefully and make sure that the process, if he is indicted, that the process by which um, this happens is, is, is perceived to be um, I don't know, very fair, at the very least, not perceived to be the witch hunt that um, Trump is claiming it to be. But they'd better succeed, hadn't they? I mean, wouldn't it be worse in, in many ways or, and backfire if after all of this they weren't able to get a conviction? And if you look at uh, the country, there's what, let's say that there's 20 or 30 percent of hardcore support for Trump. That would mean on a jury of 12, you might have at least two Trumpsters. I don't know. If, if, he, if he's convicted, he can still serve as president. We have no law against that. If he's not convicted, he can still serve as president. So to me, really, the big game is, is not will he be indicted or not, will he go to jail or not, is the, the question is, will this affect the likelihood of him being elected again? And, and I think whether he's indicted or not, the key people to watch are those middle of the road voters, those suburban uh, moms um, who had voted for Trump, um, you know, once in the first election, but not in the second election. Um, and and I just don't see these trials playing well with that audience. And so I think whether he's indicted or not, this is going to hurt him and make it less likely that he's elected. And that's the, the big game that's being played. Well, Barbara Walter, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Barbara Walter, who's a professor of political science and the Raw Chair in Pacific International Relations at the University of California, San Diego, where her current research focuses on the behavior of rebel groups in civil wars, including inter-rebel fighting, alliances and strategic use of propaganda and extremism. A life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, she serves on the CIA Advisory Panel Political Instability Task Force and helps run the award-winning blog Political Violence at a Glance and is the author of How Civil Wars Start, and how to stop them. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, 
please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.